All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to the, the book of Mark, Mark's Gospel. This book is attributed to John Mark, the same John Mark that went on the first missionary journey with Paul and ended up turning back, and later on um, would go on a second journey um, with Barnabas. It is believed that when Jesus, with the disciples in the upper room, it's believed that it was early church tradition that they were actually in the home of John Mark's parents uh, when they were there. And so all four Gospels contain the story, the account. Uh, I, I like the word account better because it's not a story. It's, a, it's literally a historical account um, of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we know that uh, Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels because about 70% of those same accounts, uh, about 70% of them are, are, are the same accounts, uh, just from a different perspective. John is, is, is uh, a little bit different, um, but uh, we want to look at the Gospel of Mark, and we will, we will hit some other Gospels along the way. Um, but this morning, I, I, I just, I'm going to be honest with you, we're saying this morning, but we pre-recorded this, so I don't Y'all got my mind all messed up about what day it is. And so I, I'm saying this morning, I just feel like a, awful. Uh, and we was kidding about it just 60 seconds earlier. And now I'm stuck and this is going to be on video. But, you know, it is what it is. And y'all know how I am. So a couple screw-ups makes you feel at home, right? You're feeling almost as if you're in the sanctuary this morning. Just a little bit more comfortable seat, better bathrooms, and probably softer toilet paper. So it's all good. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. But um, I, I will tell you that uh, this is my 14th, 14th Resurrection Sunday at this church that I've been preaching. And this, this account never gets old. Um, but there are so many distinct points that we could literally discuss. Where we could literally just, dis we could just discuss the death and resurrection of Christ. For weeks covering these scriptures and every different point of view uh, at the different accounts and they all tell something very specific uh, and, and very important. Uh, I think about it in, in the book of Luke when it talks about the napkin that was folded. There's just so many details that how do you, which you can't do them all. So which ones do you choose? Right. That, that's, that's where I found myself in a quandary. Not only that. I feel like we're a whole new audience, to be quite honest. We look back and see how many views we've had in our YouTube channel and stuff, and it's obviously a number much greater than the normal attendance of our church. I've also heard word from other people in different parts of not only this area, but different states uh, that have also commented and, and gave us some, you know, some feedback and enjoyed it. And, um, and so... My mind really just, again, when you're a pastor, you tend to kind of know your flock a little bit. And you tend to speak in a personal way because you know the folks and they're part of your family. But when you're speaking, not knowing, you know, I, we want to reach everyone, obviously. Um, and so I found myself really struggling to really settle in on what, what portion of the story do I share this morning? Because I can't share every specific point. Uh, but we can certainly get the overall theme. But if you're watching this morning and you don't know Christ, if you are struggling whether you believe in Christ, whether you believe that the scripture tells the truth, um, I pray that this morning's for you. Uh, and I believe that God has led us in a way uh, that may help you maybe come to that conclusion because we're going to include um, some what's called extra biblical, right? Or non-canonical, I think is the term, non-canonical. Boy, look that one up, Chris, write that down. Non-canonical, right? This means I'm gonna share with you some accounts about Christ that came from historical accounts that are not in the scriptures. Matter of fact, they're non-Christian, right? Non-Christian uh, historians that talk about the crucifixion uh, and also Jesus being seen alive. And so I want to share with you from some outside sources that maybe you'll trust more this morning. But hopefully it'll lead you to a place where you realize that the scripture is telling the truth. And that you can trust it. And that you can believe it. And hopefully you'll see just how much 
loves you this morning. So in Mark chapter 16, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. I appreciate Chris plugging the My Custom Church app. Uh, if you don't have it, you can go to your app store and just type in Custom Church. Uh, there's an app. It has a, a cross. It's got a blue and white logo with the cross. And once you uh, load up that app, just type in heritage-fwb, and you will see our church there. And you can choose us as your home church. And there you can go to Outlines, and you can follow along today uh, in the Outlines. And I included, I included in those Outlines that you'll be able to see the actual extra-biblical um, writings that I'm including from people like Flegan, uh, Lucian, uh, and Josephus, right? So we'll talk about those in a little bit. So Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8 says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone away for us for the entrance, uh, from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Seek the place where you laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he has gone before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he had told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, trem for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They had said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you for this beautiful day that you've given us. Father, we are so just overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving that the tomb is empty. And Lord, today we celebrate, uh, Lord, uh, the fact that you're alive. And that, Lord, that you're alive, and because you're alive, we also are made alive through you. Father, we pray today for those who are living not alive. Father, I pray for those today who don't know you, who don't know what it's like to, to live even in the time that we're in and still yet be at peace and still yet have joy because we know that, Lord, that you know tomorrow, that tomorrow is not uncertain for you. And, Lord, we know that we can trust you. Father, we know that you will take care of us. And so, Lord, I pray today for all those who do not have that joy and do not have that peace. God, I pray today, Lord, that you use us in a mighty way, not for our glory. Lord, I just pray that you use us today, Lord, in the words that you've given us. Lord, to maybe help somebody this morning who may be struggling with belief. Lord, that today, that they could settle it in their mind. And Lord, that they can trust you. And they'll know that you love them. And Lord, that they can live in peace and live with you for eternity when this life is over. Father, we love you. And we pray this, Lord, today in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As I said, all four Gospels record both the death and the res resurrection of Jesus Christ. And each one of them gives a very interesting detail and from a unique perspective. And I do encourage you to go read all of those. I was reminded uh, this week of the, of the, of the movie uh, about Lee Strobel's life. And it's called The Case for Christ, if you've ever seen it. Uh, and in that movie, uh, it centers really on the journey that he had from being an atheist to a believer in Christ. And one of the interview subjects, and I didn't go back and watch it, but I forget exactly which one of the people in there that he was talking to in that movie. But they said this, that everything hinges on the resurrection. All of our Christian beliefs hinges on the resurrection. And if that can be disproved, then the whole belief system will collapse like a house of cards. And that is true. That is absolutely true. Everything that we believe hinges on the fact that Christ is who he says he is. Because he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he said. And so if he is the truth and the life, that means that he has to be living which means the resurrection had to occur. And if he said that he's the truth, that means he is the one who establishes truth. Truth is not relative based on what you believe, but truth is what he says is true. Now, he said that, and if, listen, if that isn't true, then that would make him a liar, and then everything we believe would collapse. Now, today I believe that Jesus is alive and that the resurrection is real. And today I want to share with you from the scriptures and from some extra biblical writings today, how I come to know and believe with all of my heart 
that Jesus Christ is real and that he is alive. Now, up until the 20th century, to be quite honest with you, the death of Jesus has never really been called into question. I mean, up until the last century or so, really the death of Christ was never the issue. What was called into question was skeptics would believe whether he was alive or not, but it, there was nobody who really ever disputed his death because his death is recorded in history. The fact that Jesus walked the earth is recorded in history. It's even recorded in, in, in other religious belief systems, such as Muslims. They believe that Jesus lived. They think he was a great, wise teacher. So nobody really disputes the fact that Jesus lived, that there was someone named Jesus Christ. And they don't dispute his death. It's not just, it's only been in the recent century that that has really been called into question. And I, you know why? Because the Romans were really good at killing people. They were really good at it, just like today. Do you know anybody that's ever escaped execution once the execution has started? We've never heard of that. They didn't hear of it back then either. Because they were very careful in what they did. Matter of fact, they were very careful to make sure they were dead. We know that they pierced Jesus' side to make sure that he was dead. The Bible says blood and water came out. When you think about being pierced in the side and the way they did it, and how they thrust it upward, it's likely that they, well, we know that fluid would have been building up against his heart and his lungs. Because with crucifixion, you die pretty much of aspiration. And we know that the, the Roman soldiers even went and, and, and broke the legs of the two thieves that were hung on either side of them. But Jesus had already died. And they pierced his side to make sure blood and water came out. And that let them know that he was dead because they pierced that sack around the heart. And there's no way you could live if you did that. Even if he wasn't dead at that point, he would be now. But you know what? You know who else didn't question whether Jesus was dead? The Romans or the Pharisees. Let's look at the scripture this morning. I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. If you have the app, you can just follow along. Matthew chapter 27. We see here that the Pharisees were concerned, but it wasn't about whether Jesus was dead or not. They were concerned that the disciples would come and steal him and make it look like he was alive. Because they believe he surely was dead. Matthew chapter 27 verse 62 through 66 says this. The next day that is after the day of preparation the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And said sir we remember how that imposter said that when he was, while he was still alive. After three days I will rise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people that he has risen from the dead. And, and, and the last fraud will be the worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So listen, the Pharisees, who were the ones who wanted him dead, had been satisfied that Jesus was in fact dead. We also know that there are others that also understood and believed this to be true. Phlegon, who wrote a chronicle of history around 140 AD, uh, in this history he mentions the darkness surrounding the crucifixion in an effort to explain it. And it was accepted in that day, uh, his, his explanation. It was accepted in that day and it was also used by the early church father named of Origen. As he wrote for others to be able to understand Christianity. And this is what he said. He said, now Phlegon in the 13th or 14th book of his chronicles not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events. But also testified that the result corresponded to his predictions. And with regard to the eclipse in the time of Tiberius Caesar in whose reign Jesus appears to have been crucified. And the great earthquakes which took place then. So Phlegon, writing in 140, just, you know, just maybe a generation past the actual happening, actually recorded this because people still wondered what happened. What was it about that earthquake and, and, and this blocking of the sun, this darkness? And so Phlegon, 
non-Christian actually wrote about this in the historical chronicles. And Origen refers back, as he's teaching Christians, refers back to a secular writing to prove the point and to help them believe. There is Lucian of Samosata. He was a Greek satirist who spoke sarcastically of Christ and the Christians. But in the process, he actually affirmed that they were real people and never referred to them ever as fictional characters. And this is what he wrote. He said, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for, a, for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. So there's two secular writers that actually recorded that Jesus had been crucified and that this was a real account. By the way, what about the change of social construct among those who now accepted Jesus as Lord? You see, his disciples had gathered around him. One, well, one betrayed him. That left 11. Ten went away scared. And only one was present at his crucifixion. Because when Jesus was taken to Garden Gethsemane and didn't fight, all of that power that they had seen him display in his short ministry, now suddenly he wasn't using it at all. And it almost seemed as if he was powerless. Jesus was not powerless. Matter of fact, it was quite the opposite. But Jesus showed great restraint because he was allowing himself to be taken, allow himself to be poured out an offering for you and I. But once they saw Jesus alive again, think about how things changed. Think about the change of nature of the disciples. But not only the disciples, of all those, when we look at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came and their hearts were turned, and now these guys that once ran scared are willing to stand and give their life. Why? Because they know he's alive. And they're willing to give their life when they know that they are given life through Jesus Christ. They once ran scared, thinking that he was powerless. But when Jesus showed the ultimate power over the grave, then they knew at that point that he was the Christ. And that was good enough for them. And they were willing to allow themselves also to suffer horrible deaths. Why? Because he's alive. Amen. Because he's real. Because he exists. Amen. And he sits on the right hand of the Father making intercession even today. For all those who call. Now, we know that Jesus died. Hopefully you're convinced of that at this point. We also know that the guards were actually worried. They were worried because they knew that he had been dead. But now he had been taken. And they wanted to go back and tell their superiors. But they went to the Pharisees first. And we see this account where the Pharisees are paying them the lie. Let's look at Matthew 28. Verses 11 through 15. It says, While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the, the guards knew what happened. But they went in the city to tell the Pharisees what had happened. And the Pharisees paid them off and said, listen, don't worry about it. And if your superiors come, we'll take care of them. Why? Because the Romans knew that if they let a prisoner escape, they'd be dead. And listen, Jesus escaped the tomb, not as Houdini, but he escaped the tomb because he was once dead and now he was made alive. And God rolled the stone back and they knew the story and they didn't know what to do. So they go tell the Pharisees, the Pharisees like, listen, lie and say his disciples took him. They were going to go back and tell their superiors the, most likely the truth and tell them what happened. They were scared. They were scared because they would lose their jobs. They were soldiers. And if you cannot guard a dead guy, 
You know what I'm saying? If you can't guard a dead guy and keep him contained, listen, you ain't got no future in the army, my friend. You imagine being that soldier like, what are we going to tell him? He was dead. We, we can't contend with God. I mean, what are we, we going to do? We lost a dead guy. I mean, this ain't weekend at Bernie's, folks. <laughs> you imagine telling this story to somebody who doesn't believe? You imagine being a soldier? Hey, they ain't going to believe it. There's been times, you know, there's times when your buddies hang out. You, you know, we, we hang out and get to laugh and carry on. And like people are like, you remember that time? Ain't nobody going to believe that. But we know it happened. Y'all remember that? Of course, it usually started with, hey, hold this. Something like that. But you imagine the guards? I mean, these guards are scared at this point. How do we go back and tell them we lost a dead guy? Well, first off, you'd have to come clean with the truth. He ain't dead. He's alive. Now, they'd rather tell the story that the disciples stole than to say that he who was dead is now alive. And by the way, some people who want to say that maybe Jesus wasn't dead, it's called the swoon theory if you want to look it up. They say that maybe he wasn't dead, that when they laid him in the cold tomb, maybe he was just, you know, his breathing was so shallow and stuff, but in the cold tomb, maybe he kind of, you know, he was able to kind of get some of his strength. Do you realize that, that he was whipped beyond recognition? And if Jesus had walked out of the tomb in that condition, think about the horror that people would have had on their face seeing him like that walking. I mean, there's, that would have been a recorded in history. There's just no way. Everyone, including the Pharisees and the Romans, knew that he was dead. Historians wrote about the fact that Jesus had been crucified and he was dead. The guards didn't question his death. They just didn't know what to do in explaining that he is now alive. And so if his death isn't in question, and hopefully it's not at this point, then it all hinges on the resurrection. Did Jesus arise alive from the tomb? And if he did, then what does that mean for us? That's now what we have to answer today. Did he arise alive? Did Jesus come alive out of the tomb? So maybe you believe an eyewitness account. Now, I don't know about you, but there's also, you know, when you look at the credibility of a witness, right? You ever notice the people that actually see Bigfoot? They're all weird. I don't think. Right? You see somebody that says they saw Bigfoot, it's always like, man, you ain't believe this, man. I saw Big man. It was, it was real, man. And you're like, dude, that guy is off his rocker. And so one person that says they saw Bigfoot, that looked like, like they walked right out of a Cheech and Chong movie, ain't nobody going to believe that. But I ask you this, how many have to see him for you to believe? I like to ask this question. Was any of you all here when Washington crossed the Delaware? I wasn't there. Neither were you. But everybody in this room agrees that Washington crossed the Delaware. So let's look at who saw Christ alive. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 9. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Over 500 at one time saw him alive. And let me tell you something, church. If it hadn't been him, there's no way that that story would still stand today. If it hadn't been him, they wouldn't have given their lives at the hand of Nero through torture. They wouldn't have stood for that had they not really seen him. Listen, we can absolutely be sure, just as I am sure that Washington crossed the Delaware because some people saw it and wrote about it, I am also sure that Christ died on the cross, 
and arose again on the third day. Now I want to read from you from the book called Antiquities of the Jews. This is written by a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus' credibility is very high. He was very high with the Romans, and he was not a Christ sympathizer, which means this, he was not a Christ follower. He did not sympathize with Christians. He was a hardcore Jew. And like I said, he was also accepted uh, by the Romans in his uh, historical accounts and all the books that he wrote. And so there are several. And so in book, I have to look at the Roman numerals, in book 18 of the Antiquities of the Jews, he records this account in chapter 3, he calls it Sedition of the Jews against Pontius Pilate concerning Christ and what befell Paulina and the Jews at Rome. And I'm just going to read just a section. But before I read that, in the preface of the uh, volumes of Antiquities of the Jews uh, that was written by Josephus, he says this. Now, of these several reasons for writing history, I must profess the two last were my own reasons also, for since I myself... Interested in that war which we Jews had with the Romans and knew myself its particular actions and what conclusion it had, I was forced to give the history of it because I saw that others perverted the truth of those actions in their writings. Did you, you hear the conviction in this man? I had the right because people were perverting the truth. His books are not centered around Christ, but he wrote about Christ because that was part of the history that he had experienced. And he says, now I have undertaken the present work as thinking that it will appear to all the Greeks worthy of their study, for it will contain all our antiquities and the constitution of our government as interpreted out of the Hebrew scriptures. And it, I, indeed, I did formally intend when I wrote of the war to explain who the Jews originally were, what fortunes they had been subject to, and by what legislature they had been instructed in piety and exercise of their virtues. This man is a hardcore, stone-cold Jew. He was, not, he, he, he was not taken with Christ and the followers of Christ, but he was impacted by Christ's life. Now let me write what he wrote. He says, now there uh, about... This time was Jesus a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ, and when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day and the divine prophets had foretold these and 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day. Now, if I remember correctly, when you look at Josephus' age, uh, again, he was maybe one generation removed from at the time that, that Christ uh, was, was actually crucified. But that's well within, right? That's well within. When you, when you start looking at textual criticism, it's well within the parameters of what we would include today and even our own texts of historical documents um, as, as being within, you know, reason. And so him, a hardcore Jew, was still taken by this man, Jesus, and talked about not only his crucifixion, but he was seen alive again on the third day. Over 500. This man writes about him in the historical documents of the Jews. Why? Because he couldn't deny him. And when you can't deny something, you at least then make sure that you get the truth out there so that it is the truth and not left to the folly of other people who want to distort it, which is exactly what he said in the preface of his book. He was taken and he had to tell the truth. Now listen, Origen also wrote in his book, Jesus was alive while of no assistance to himself, but that he arose after death and exhibited the marks of his punishment and showed his hands had been pierced by the nails. There was a guy named Sir Lionel Lucku. You imagine getting stuck with that name? Lucku? 
Sir Lionel Lucku was a famous lawyer and he was a Guinness World Record holder for winning 245 consecutive murder trial cases. He had defended and won in 245 consecutive murder trials. Don't you just feel dirty talking about his name? I mean, <laughs> just, mm. you know how we lawyers, I'm sure there's some really good Christian ones, right? I'm sure, but you just know that he probably had to defend some people that were guilty. 200, the, the chance of him defending 245 innocent people that had enough evidence to go to trial is highly unlikely. But here's the thing. When he was asked to review the material and the account of the resurrection, this is what Sir Lionel Lucku said. He said, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. When a lawyer can't deny the evidence before him, folks, we have an overwhelming case that Christ was not only crucified, but he is also alive. And if you don't believe the Bible, how many more people do I need to find? Some people may struggle with the Bible because they, they hear these things. By the way, they hear these things. The Bible contradicts itself. And I always challenge somebody who says that very thing. Show me one. Show me where it contradicts. And usually the, the few things they may think that contradict when you look at it in context, it's not contradicting at all. Over where We have 66 books. Right? I forget how many authors off the top of my head, uh, almost 40, I think, or something like that. A bunch of authors, 66 books written over the account of over 2,000 years, and still from Genesis to Revelation, it all goes together and it matches. By the way, if there were contradictions, we'd have, actually have credible books out here that shows the contradictions, but that isn't the case. Because if you want to say there's a contradiction, you've got to take the whole word. Right? By the way, we tell that to people reading the Bible, too. Don't just look at one verse. you got to read the whole, right? Look at that verse in context and also interpret Scripture by Scripture. And when you do that, you realize that there isn't any contradictions. We have over 500 people to Psalm. We have people that weren't even in the Bible, people that didn't want anything to do with the Bible, didn't want to do anything with Christ. Still yet, they were compelled to write in their historical documents that Jesus was crucified and that he was seen alive. So if you don't believe the Bible, believe those other historians. Because Josephus is used a lot to recreate and understand a lot of Rome, as well as Pliny the Younger and a couple others that I didn't include today. There actually are more, by the way, that write on the account of Christ. I had a, a document here that says this. Uh, it was done by Dr. Kevin Hester. This was actually a school project that I, when I was... Uh, going to, to Welch uh, via online. It says, ancient historians occasionally make mention of Jesus or early Christianity in their historical writings. We see references made to the movement by Roman historians Julius Africanus, Pliny the Younger, Suetonius, Tacticus. Pliny's evidence, he says, is interesting. He is writing to describe the interrogation of Christians, and he explains that they sang hymns to Christ as God. Suetonius writing in the early 2nd century refers to the expulsion of Jews from Rome during the reign of Claudius because of riots over Christus. Tacticus, living at approximately the same time, mentions Jesus as one who was crucified in Palestine and was worshipped. We also have the Jewish historian Josephus, which I read from, who makes reference to Christ. Right? And so there are so many that speak. People that we, we actually use their historical documents for our understanding of what we know about the Roman Empire and things like that. So we use their history, historical accounts for a lot of the other history that we believe to be true. So how can we not believe it about Christ? So here's the deal. So if he did die and he did raise again, and I believe we have overwhelming proof, then what does that mean for us? And so I, I won't hold you much longer, but I'm going to just hit a couple accounts. First off, 
for us to really understand how the resurrection impacts us, that we first have to take a look at ourselves and our condition when standing before God. So if you're today, if you've been struggling whether you believe in God, and now maybe you're coming to that place where, you know what, maybe this is true, then, then what does that mean for me? Let me explain to you what it means for you. First off, it means, listen, if Christ is real, then the judgment he speaks of is also the truth, and he is coming back again to take his people home. And if you're not part of his people, because he is the way, the truth, and the life, there is no other way to heaven but through him. And if, listen, if he's alive today and he is the truth, then we have to come to the place where we, we, we come confronted with that face-to-face. -face. Then what do I do with the account of Christ? If he is alive today, then that means the rest of this is true too, which means that one day I'm going to stand before him and give an account for my life and the knowledge I was given of him being alive. So what does that mean for me? First off, it means I need to take a look at the condition of my heart. And my standing before Almighty God. Because when I look at me in real truth, if I'm honest about who I am, then I have to be honest with the fact that I do not deserve heaven. And that I have done so much and I have sinned against a holy God. And the Bible says that the wages of sin are death. So Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may think that you're a good person. You may think that you do a lot of great things for a lot of great people. But if you're honest about it, we are evil in our hearts. We are selfish. And we've all done enough to deserve death. Amen. We've all fallen short of perfection, which is the plumb line. Right? It is the plumb line. The Bible says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. If you've ever seen a cornerstone, it's that, it's that stone that they put in a corner of a building that is absolutely true. It is perfectly true. All sides are flat, 90-degree angles, and they use that cornerstone to level the whole entire building. Everything that we believe is built on this chief cornerstone. And he set the plumb line, and the plumb line is perfection. And the scripture says that if you're not perfect as he is perfect, then you will stand in judgment. And the wages of your sin, in other words, what you have earned by sinning against God is death. Romans 5, 12, or Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 13. It says, therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was, the, was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And so listen, you and I, without the covering of Christ, then we will live according to the law. Now think about that for a minute. If I'm not going to look at Christ as Lord and be covered by the payment which he made, then I'm going to have to make the payment myself because the law demands it. Christ came to complete the law. But if you're not going to accept Christ, then by the law you will die. Because you are not perfect. And the law says that you have to be measured against perfection. And if you fall short, then you'll pay with your life. However, the law was completed in an all-time sacrifice of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. And he arose from the dead and lives now so that that sacrifice then completed the law for all those who will accept him. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But then he says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we have to take a good hard look at ourselves and be honest. Now the whole idea is not to beat you down and say, oh man, you're just trying to make me feel like I'm a sinner. No, what I'm trying to tell you is you're exactly like me and everybody else in this building. There's only a few of us, by the way, but you're like everybody else. We're sinners. I'm not trying to tell you you're bad. I'm trying to tell you that you're probably better than I am. But you still fall short. You fall short. I fall short. We all fall short. I'm not trying to beat you down and, and tell you that you're an awful, despicable sinner. I'm telling you that when you measure against God's perfection, you're going to fall short. Just like I fall short. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you may not think that you're a big sinner, but little sinners are still sinners. You may have not went out and murdered anybody, but you know what Jesus said? He said, the law said, thou shalt not kill. But if you call somebody a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. You know what Jesus was saying? Murder is more than just taking somebody's physical life. You can murder people with your words. You can hurt their spirit. You can just knock the wind out of a person. And you can kill their spirit. You ever done that? You ever took something that wasn't yours? You ever fudged a number on your taxes? I mean, just think about all the, when you think about the law, there's not one of us that can keep it. 
God knew that we couldn't keep it. So in the Old Testament, we see that with that, that Mosaic covenant that he had, or I'm sorry, the Abrahamic covenant that he had, you know, there was sacrifice. That he said, okay, you're, when you sin, then you have to make a sacrifice. Blood has to be shed. There has to be a payment. Your sin demands a payment. And you see, when I, when I, look, at, when I look at what I've done, and then I realize that, that I, I'm accountable for that payment because I have sinned. And therefore, I have a sin debt against me. And it, in, in God's book, I owe him. And the Bible says that, that Jesus came to reconcile. That's an accounting term. He came to reconcile us. Because he knows that, listen, that, 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 we, that we are sinners and we need him. And that they had been making animal sacrifices, but he sent his son to die. So that that law could be completed in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you will claim him as your Lord, just as I've claimed him as my Lord and everybody else who loves him, who accepts his payment and recognizes him as almighty God, if you'll do the same, then he'll reconcile your account too. But if not, then you'll stand before judgment and realize that you're left there and the only thing you have to give is your life and it's going to be taken from you. And you will spend an eternity in a devil's hell because you wouldn't Except the payment that was made for you by Christ. Could you imagine walking up to the bank and owing a big debt knowing you didn't have the money to pay it? And the only thing you had to offer was yourself. I don't have the money. All I can give you is me. Could you imagine standing there before them and they're like, well, listen, then you're going to have to give me you. Because you owe this. And there you are, left with nothing. You ain't got nothing. And all you can give them is your life. And you say, well, we're going to take it. But all of a sudden, somebody just steps up and says, listen, I love you. I love you. And listen, if you'll call me Lord and your master, I'll take care of this debt right now. And you can keep your life. Matter of fact, you can live with me and my house for the, all of eternity. If you'll let me cancel this debt, right? If you let me pay for this, if you'll call me Lord, you can come live with me for, for all of eternity. And you'll never have to worry about another debt again. Who wouldn't take that? But yet many stand there and say, nope, I'm too proud. I'm not going to live in your house. I don't, want to, I don't want you to be my master or my Lord. By the way, he's a wonderful master. He's a wonderful Lord. He never takes you somewhere that he doesn't equip you for what you need. Matter of fact, the psalmist said that I've been young and I've been old. And I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He's a good God. He's a good master. Oh, listen. Listen, you'd be remiss if you didn't call him Lord today. You see, we're all sinners. We've all sinned, and that sin demands that sin demands a payment. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 through 15, it says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood and goats and calves, but the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He's redeemed us by his blood, not by the blood of animals for all time. It says, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for purification of the flesh, then how much more will the blood of Christ, who through eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He is the mediator of the new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So we go all the way back to that covenant he made with Abraham. And then we get that Mosaic law. Some people call it the Mosaic covenant because of the law that he handed down through Moses. But through those laws, there, there had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be a sacrifice. He's saying here that those sacrifices never could really cleanse you. But God honored them. Because he knew that it would point to the new covenant he has with us. Where he would offer his son as a complete, good for all, eternal sacrifice so that there will be no more shedding of blood. That the blood that was shed of Christ is enough. 
Romans 3, 23, verse 23 through 25. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. A propitiation is a substitutionary sacrifice. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So before we know that the blood of those animals couldn't really cleanse, but God would honor it because by faith they were following his law. But now Jesus offered as a final sacrifice and he became the propitiation, the substitutionary sacrifice for all time. So we realize that we have all sinned and that sin demands a payment. And that payment was made. But listen, if Jesus had died and stayed dead, then it would have been no different than the offering the blood of the animals, would it? But it is because Jesus offered his life and he was risen and he has risen that we know that we can be alive in him. Before those animals were died and they were just dead. They didn't guarantee a resurrection. They didn't guarantee an eternal life. They guaranteed that at that moment and at that time that it would satisfy God for that moment. And that sacrifice had to be continually done over and over and over. I always kind of, you know, used to make fun and Mary's not here to make fun of her. Um, but I often thought that what it must look like when they were going to the temple for sacrifice. You know, there was a sacrifice that was laid out for all these different things, you know, and there'd be one person that's a real good person, just got one little old lamb or one little old dove and going to the temple because they just had, a, you know, and then there's some people look like they're driving a herd, you know, that like John Wayne on one of them things, got a whole herd of them, right? Yeah, you're driving a whole, oh man, I sinned this week. I mean, it was bad, right? I'd have a whole herd of them, them lambs going there. They'd be all being bad, bad, all over the place. They'd be like, oh, look, Huff coming. Huff coming. Look like he must got must have been a bad week for him. Good grief. He got hurt about 50 down to there. Oh, and I don't even count Sal. Look, Sal got another hunter behind him. They must have been into it. <laughs> Y'all imagine that? I talked about how it'd be funny. Dave had one little lamb. Mary had like 20 of them. Come on, come on. I'm probably walking out of a candle frame. Hey, how you doing over here? Obviously, if we don't have a cameraman, they can follow me around. I wasn't thinking of that. See, Jesus Christ, if he would have just been dead and just been, I mean, crucified and just dead, then where is the guarantee of the eternal life? But it's because he's alive that that sacrifice was complete and done. He gave his life and now he lives so that he can cover us continually with that blood. And so, yes, the giving of his life, oh, what an act of love. And we'll, we'll close with that. But the fact that he is alive gives us the guarantee that because he is alive, that that, that, that was completed. And that the prophecies have, have all that have been spoken have all been completed. And now that sacrifice is made complete because he's alive. Because the tomb is empty that we can guarantee because he lives that I can face tomorrow. Because he lives I'm guaranteed that I will live again. Just as he was raised from the dead, I will be raised too. If he had just died then he would have just been dead. And there's been many prophets that have been alive and dead. But it's because he was dead and we guarantee you that he was dead. And we also can guarantee through the historical documents that he's alive and because he's alive we can live. If our hope had been in him just in, in, in that life and then, then it would have just been then. If Christ had not risen from the dead hope in him would have just been for those in that day. And their hope would have ended with his death. This is what Paul wrote. Since now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ had been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I mean, I know people cringe when I say something like that. If Christ has died, then he would just be dead and it wouldn't have been a sacrifice at all. But that's the truth. Paul says it here when he writes to the Corinthians. If Christ had not raised, then listen, our preaching is in vain. It is done. It is of no value. Everything that we believe hinges upon the fact that he's alive. 
And it's funny how we all wear, I remember listening to one speaker talk about how we wear crosses like as jewelry. Do you think anybody ever wore a cross as jewelry before Jesus? That'd be like you running around with an electric chair necklace. That's just a lovely electric chair necklace you have. So, wow, is that gold? Is that really gold? Yeah. It's that kind of gold that puts the green spot on my chest. It's really nice. Or, or in today, since they don't use electric chair, what about a gallows? That's a beautiful gallows you've got hanging from your neck there. Oh, do you got earrings to match? They're just something. Or maybe a gurney for the lethal injection of today. That lethal injection, did you see, oh man, that, that pendant with the lethal injection table there? They even got a little IV bottle there for the needle and everything. It's so nice. Do you think anybody wore a cross before Jesus? But the cross became a symbol, not just of his death, but of his resurrection, because the cross, the cross couldn't hold him. The tomb couldn't keep him. Matter of fact, I would think that we would be a little more precise if we actually wore an empty tomb pendant than we would a cross, wouldn't we? But the cross reminds us that he sacrificed his life for us. But wouldn't the empty tomb be a better necklace to wear? Because that's really everything that we stake our life on, stakes our life on the fact that that tomb is empty. Paul said that if he had not risen, then our preaching is in vain. In verse 15, it says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So you see what that means? Listen, if Christ had just died, then he had just been dead and you'd still be in your sin. It's the fact that he's alive today is to know that we are cleansed and free from all unrighteousness. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Amen. Because he's alive, I am clean from head to toe and my sins have been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. It says that all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of a people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, for as by man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because he lives. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And I know who holds the future. Because he lives. Yes, I don't know the whole course of that song. I get lost in the last stanza. Christ gave his life a ransom for all. We know John 3, 16, God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So listen, what does, if he is alive, what does that mean to me? That means you've got to come face to face that you have an eternal problem. Because we've sinned, we've got to pay for that sin. But if we'll accept the payment made by Christ, listen, then we can live eternally. But because we've sinned, blood has to be shed. There has to be a sacrifice made because of our sin. But Christ has made it. And because he's alive, we know that we can also be made alive as well. Some people ask whether whosoever includes them. You sure Christ can save me? I'm living, listen, if he can save me, he can save you. But there was something that Jesus did on the cross that I think guarantees every one of us. That there is nothing that we've done. There's nothing that you and I have done that would, dis, that, that would in any way disclude us from being part of whosoever will. And it's my favorite saying from the cross. I love the fact that he says it is finished. I do. But Jesus, when he on the cross, first off, he had two thieves arguing back and forth. One says, if you're really him, then get yourself down from here and get us down too. The other one says, don't you realize we belong here, but this man has done nothing. Jesus told him today, you'll be with me in paradise. So Jesus took the thief with him. 
that was being executed for his crimes. In the middle of his execution, yet still Jesus forgave him. But there's something even better than that. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says, And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Think about that for a minute. Jesus was in the most painful part of this horrible execution. He was fighting for every breath. You see, in crucifixion, they had their knees bent a little bit. And they, they died of asphyxiation. They, they, they could take air in, but they can't get it out. And so they'll have to push up with their feet to try to take the tension off of their arms so their diaphragm can move. And eventually they can no longer, they get so weak that they can't keep lifting up to, to be able to exhale and get another breath. And finally they die of asphyxiation. It is a horrible, horrible way to die. In the middle of his execution, pain racking through his body. He had been scourged so bad and now hang on the cross near death. And even in his near-death painful moment, he asked for forgiveness for the very ones who had racked that pain on him. For the very ones who had driven the nails in his hands. The ones who had whipped them and mocked him. The ones who had spit on him. The ones who so meanly beat that crown of thorns down on his head and mocked him and made fun of him and called him king of the Jews. And if you're him, get yourself down. And right in front of him, they're gambling for his garments. And yet Jesus, with his love for us, why do I say us? Because I would have been there mocking him too. And you probably would have too. Jesus made it clear at that moment that whosoever includes even the ones who drove the nails. And that includes me and you. So let there make sure today if there's, you may have guilt in your heart that you make you think that, well, God loves people, but he won't love me. God loves you. If God will forgive the ones who nailed him to the cross, he'll forgive you. And he made sure that they knew. He said, they don't know what they're doing, but forgive them. You know what that meant? He was letting them know that when you finally come to your senses, you realize what day this is, when you finally realize what it is that you did, you're going to just, you're going to be racked with guilt and you're just going to be beside yourself. But know that I have already asked for your forgiveness. So Jesus there, he is not only being the sacrifice, but he's also being the priest at the same time. He's being the mediator while he's being offered as the sacrifice. Man, isn't that something? And he's still doing that today. So if you've realized you sinned, and you realize the payment's got to be made, and you realize today and you believe that Jesus made that payment for you, then the only thing left for you to do is call him Lord. You see, if you realize that you need a Savior today and you want to be reconciled to God so that you can live free from guilt and shame, then I want you to follow this verse today. Romans 10, 9, and verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So that's what I want to close with today. I want to close with a prayer. Listen, if you realize you've sinned, you ain't no different than the rest of us. Join the crowd. Plenty of room for you. You realize you sinned, and you realize that there really is something in this that that there's no way that these other historians would write about this Christ had he not really lived, had he not really died, and had he not really been seen alive again. So if there is something to this, and if there is something to this, then I've got to look at the rest of his writings, and he's telling me in his word that, that I've got to stand for judgment one day, and that I'm either going to pay with my life, or I can call him Lord, and he'll make that payment for me. If you realize that today, then... What the scripture says here, that if you confess with your mouth and believe that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You know what that means? If you believe today that he is raised from the dead, and if you will confess him as Lord, you are saved. We talk about having to say a prayer. Listen, I'm telling you right now, if you follow that scripture, you're saved. But I do want to pray. And I want you to pray with me. Listen, if you're here, if you're look, listening this morning or watching this morning, you realize that you need Jesus and you realize that he really was the son of God and he really was dead and he is alive. If you'll believe that, if you'll call him Lord, would you pray with me today?
and pray something like this. Father, Lord, I realize that you are real. And I've always knew that there's something about it in my heart. But Lord, I'm convinced today. I'm convinced that you're real. And if you're real, then I know that I'm one day going to answer to you. So I ask you to forgive me. And I will call you Lord. I will give you this broken life in exchange Lord, for the eternal life that you offer me as a free gift. Father, please lead me and help me, Lord, to now grow from this moment forward and help me, Lord, to, to, to understand what it is to live for you. I pray that you give me wisdom and understanding of your word and lead me to a church that can help guide me and support me so I can be a part of a faith community. And I pray this in the dear, precious name of your beautiful son.